The three pillars of trust, what are they and why are they necessary for building information systems to support today's evolving business needs? Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I'm talking today with Mike Osborne, a principal with Booz Allen Hamilton. Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tom. If you can, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with Booz Allen Hamilton and your work around this topic we're going to discuss today. Sure. Uh, as you said, I'm a principal at Booz Allen Hamilton. I lead our efforts in what we call trust services, uh, particularly with respect to some of the recent government changes, including the adoption of what they call the trust framework and the national strategy for trusted identities in cyberspace that was announced uh, in January. I sit on a, a variety of industry boards, having been in this space for the last four or five years, and I'm on the Information Card Foundation a board member on the Open Identity Foundation and the Open Identity Exchange. Well, Mike, you produced a white paper that's called The Three Pillars of Trust, and the opening premise there is that the Internet is insufficiently secure to support today's evolving business needs. Why don't you discuss that premise? Why is the Internet insufficiently secure today? Well, I think it's important to understand what the Internet really is great at. Um, and I think that's what's driven the growth uh, from the mid-90s when when I was involved in it. And a lot of people in the mid-90s didn't think the Internet was ever really going to catch on. But it's clearly uh, unsurpassed in its ability to drive down the cost of computing. And so that's why more and more services are moving to the web. And then, as, as most people know, there's a big push now to move into cloud-type services, whether that's social networks or uh, services like Twitter or other kind of consumer-based services. And the Internet's also unsurpassed its ability to open up new markets, which is why we've seen the global expansion and why, again, services move first to the web and then move to mobile devices, which as late as the 1999-2000, uh, most people never thought you would ever do email on a cell phone. But I think with all the positives and strengths of the Internet, one of the greatest problems is that the architecture itself, the thing that has allowed it to grow so rapidly, it was just deficient in the fact that there is no core basis for identifying the parties that are engaged in the transactions online, and therefore there's no native way to secure those transactions or to really enable people to trust the services that they're taking advantage of, and we've seen more and more reports of that in the last three, four years, whether you consider that to be problems of identity theft or issues such as the WikiLeaks problems that have been in the newspaper recently. And so with all the power and all the strength of the Internet, clearly it's going to be at the core of what supports our economy and our society going forward. But it becomes really important now as we put more and more service requirements on it that we have the ability to put back in place that missing infrastructure for trust. So, Mike, to play devil's advocate, if I'm an organization that hasn't been affected by identity theft or information leakage, I come back and say the Internet has worked fine for, for my business, you know, so what insufficiently secure? How do you respond to that? Well, I think what you would look to, and, and this is particularly the case, let's say, with uh, the federal government or with the, the government in Great Britain, I think, has uh, most recently made this more clear, is that most organizations, even if they are doing some things online, there are many things that they are not doing online, or there are many places where their online service performance is not as great as it could be. And, and that can range from... I think the last retail statistic I saw is that even in 2011, with as much e-commerce as going on, 
still some 30 to 40 percent of transactions are abandoned at some point before there's a fulfillment of that transaction because people have forgotten their password or because they've run into some problem of authentication or authorization, which are implicitly problems associated with this lack of a secure infrastructure where we can easily and, and conveniently engage in transactions in a way that we can trust on both sides of that transaction, whether it's the service provider or the consumer. And so I think in most instances, for, for companies who say everything's just fine with me, what you would find is a great many areas where their operating costs are higher than they would need to be because they're not doing things online that they really could if they had a secure infrastructure or because they're not being as effective in their online transactions because their users, their consumers, are not finding it as convenient as they would like to find it or where the user is not sharing information that is important to the service provider because that user is worried about the privacy of that information or how that data would be controlled or shared. So all those issues, all those operational issues, are really the implicit problems of the lack of that secure, trustworthy infrastructure that is just not there today. Well, that's a good perspective. Let's talk about these three pillars of trust now. We'll take them in order and talk about what they are and what their key elements are in, in working together to form the, these pillars you discuss. First one is identity. Tell us about that. Sure, and I, I think, you know, while we'll talk about them one by one, they, they, all three are important, and that what they really reflect is the need to be able to operate in an online environment in the same way that we as human beings innately operate in the physical world. So if I was going to come and engage with you as a service provider, or even if you were my neighbor and I came to borrow a power tool from you, the first thing that we both would want to know is, well, who are we dealing with? And that, in the, in the fancy word for that, is identity, right? And that's both the authentication, um, have I ever seen you before? Do I have some context of knowing that you really are the person that you purport to be? And then some sort of authorization. Um, have I ever borrowed a tool from you before? Do I have? Did I return it? Did I return it in a good fashion or was it broken? So all those nuanced aspects uh, that from a technical perspective we would call uh, identity components or attributes of, of our identity those all come into play in our physical world, and likewise, they come into play in the digital world as well. And until recently, there really have been uh, insufficient frameworks to positively identify individuals, and therefore, that's one of the biggest problems that we have online is that absence of identity, which sits at the core of these trust-related problems. The second pillar is privacy. What can you tell us about that, Mike? I think privacy falls right along. So as I go to engage with you or engage with people online, all of us interact in a particular context in the services that we take advantage of. I think the easiest way to understand privacy, and particularly in contrast to the questions around security, because to some extent they're on two sides of the same coin, but the simplest explanation I use for privacy, and we all know it, that's the information that I care about as a user. So I want to be sure that when I tell you something about me or something about my family or my economic condition or my uh, where I live or things of that nature, I want to be very sure that you're using that information in a proper way. And the, the aspects of privacy are very rich because in some instances that same piece of information that would allow you to make things more convenient for me is the piece of information that I'm happy for you to use, but I would not want you to share with somebody else. So all those considerations about how does the service provider take care of the information that I care about most from a personal perspective, those considerations are all wrapped up in this notion of privacy. 
So the final pillar is security. And, and as you know, often security and privacy get confused for one another. How do you distinguish security among these pillars? At, at a layman's level, I, I treat it in the following way. Um, privacy is the information that I care about. Security is everything else that you as the service provider really need to be responsible for. And that can range from the way that you internally protect that information, the, the systems that you have of, uh, to protect against insider threat, or the systems you have to protect from people coming in from the outside. And they extend all the way over to the service environment upon which you offer that service. So if you've created an, an iPhone app or an app that's going to run on my Droid device, then you're responsible if your security needs to extend all the way out to that device so that in whatever service context I'm participating as a user, I can feel, feel confident that that's a secure transaction and that you've done what's necessary to protect it on an end-to-end -end basis. Well, Mike, that's a good overview of the pillars. And, and let's say that I'm a security leader and I'm sold on this concept of building around the pillars. Now I've got to make this business case now. What are the hard and soft benefits of the three pillars that I'm going to take to my senior management, my board, to, to get their support? Well, I think the hard benefits usually always come down to money, um, cost savings that you're going to be able to uh, enjoy because you've moved to an architecture that fundamentally supports security at the very core transactional level. So if you just compare the situation, as you move services to the cloud, you're actually going to incur more expenses tomorrow in that cloud-type environment than you had today because you have a new different environment. You have to have different controls and different security infrastructures you're going to have to take into account. Likewise, when you move things to a mobile environment, that's one more silo of activity that in the traditional way you have to build a silo of protection or security around that. So as you offer more services in more ways, as you interconnect more and more service architectures, your costs of security actually increase, your risks actually increase. If you instead look at that and you build those on a core foundation of what we call the, the trust architecture so that you can positively identify the user both from an authentication and authorization perspective, and you can deliver that transaction in a secure environment, and you're able because you've got a trust relationship with your user where you've made it clear that you can protect their privacy, and therefore you're engaging at a whole different level of uh, personalization in terms of the service, and you're able to do more and more services that are defined to that individual, and you can do them online, what ends up happening is you actually see a cost reduction on a transactional level because now your security infrastructure scales in the same way that your service offerings scale. So from a hard benefits perspective, it basically boils down to a lower cost of operation, both because I can move more services online and get the basic operational costs of doing it online versus doing it in person or in a bricks and mortar type fashion. I also have a cost reduction in the way that my overall risk management posture has been improved because I can positively identify the individuals that I'm dealing with and I can interact in transactions that are secure at that transactional level. And I can also see operational benefits, and maybe in some instances that will be considered soft uh, soft benefits, but whether that's uh, if you're an enterprise a revenue increase because you're now able to interact uh, more frequently with your users where you're able to fulfill more transactions and take advantage of more and more service offerings that you have out there, or from a government perspective, where you now are just more successful in your mission than you were before, whether that is a matter of 
for the Internal Revenue Service being able to more efficiently deal with the hundreds of millions of people that want to file their taxes online and would like to follow up and interact online in ways that they can't do today, or whether you're part of the health infrastructure of the United States or of any country as we move more and more to an environment where we want to take more of that information and be able to put it online or put it into a digital environment so that doctors can be better at providing the kind of care that we as individuals would like to receive. So let's talk about how we get from here to there. What would you say the roadmap is? I think the key to it is really to recognize this is not a technology issue. And I think that's sometimes the hardest things for enterprises and for and for government agencies is that if you mention the word digital or if you mention the word online, immediately they think of this as a technology problem. And it's really not. Uh, the technology that we're talking about that would allow us to implement these things, whether it's a digital credential that we can take advantage of or a biometric, uh, a piece of biometric information, an iris scan or a voice print or a facial uh, something that can be used from a facial recognition perspective, all that technology is well-developed and is well-standardized now across the, the economy and, and we have different platforms and different service providers that can provide those kind of tools. <clears throat> it really boils down to an issue of how do you want to interact with the user. And so I think the roadmap begins with people that are in that kind of responsible position who see a strategic opportunity or a strategic requirement to be able to provide services in ways that they haven't done before whether that's just at lower costs, which is a big issue now across governments in the United States or in the UK, as an example. The UK, I've mentioned them twice, it was really interesting. Last fall, they actually put in place a program they call Digital by Default. And their approach is that by 2012, they want to have 100% of their citizens with online capabilities, and they want to move 30% of all their service interactions online simply because they need to find lower-cost ways to provide service. So regardless of where you sit in your organization, the key first step on that roadmap is to recognize that you now have the ability to offer services today in 2011 that you could not have offered online in the same way in 2009, and to make the affirmative decision to begin down that path to define the types of services that you want to offer and then build them upon those three pillars of identity, privacy, and security. So to stick with the analogy of, of a roadmap or a trip, what are some of the speed bumps an organization might encounter along the way? Well, I think the biggest ones are always, the, as I said, the organizational prejudice to think of these things as complicated or as things that you know the technology guys are going to go handle in the basement of some other building that is far, far away from any kind of uh, personal or human being interactions. I think that, that's a big problem because what... What happens in that situation is that you don't sort of step back and focus on the real environment in which you're trying to succeed. And as I've said uh, many, many times, in a world of smartphones and social networks, everything is interconnected. So this old sort of architectural approach of saying that I'm going to offer one service online and building a little silo of protection around that service and trying to control that silo that just doesn't work anymore when all those silos need to be interconnected and when you have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people who have already taken steps to empower themselves, whether that's through, uh, uh, as I said, through a cell phone or whether that's through some sort of social network uh, environment in which they're already willing to operate. 
So I think that the, the roadblocks, the stepping, the, the, the problem areas really come from organizations that for whatever reason are having a hard time taking a fresh look at this environment and looking at the big problems that they're trying to solve in the real world situation in which they're going to be operating where they already, their users are already online. Their users are already interacting with certain service providers with a far greater level of interaction than in many cases a government agency is is offering or even an enterprise might be offering. So I think the key to the roadmap is to make that affirmative decision that this is a new day, that we are in a new environment, as the UK says, where things should be digital by default, where we should be able to allow the user to have a greater level of control, recognizing that when they have greater control, they're going to offer up a greater level of interactions, which is what many we're all in that business as service providers. And the roadblocks are really all the things that would cause people to say, oh, we've tried that before, that can't work, or to just refuse to recognize the environment in which we find ourselves today. Well, you've made a compelling case for, for what needs to happen. I guess my question is, what's the compelling reason to do it now in 2011? Well, I think a lot of it comes from that, that critical mass. I mean, uh, you know, this book, The Tipping Point, that many people referenced over the last several years, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And when you recognize that, you know, as I said, um, in my past life I was a CIO at a, a cell phone company, and we put browsers on cell phones in 1999. And the only thing that was clear then is that no one would ever do email on a cell phone. And now we live in a world where, you know, uh, teenagers and children that are younger than that have cell phones. and they're you know, constantly on Twitter or they're chatting or they're sending emails. And so our environment is very, very different. So that's, that's point number one. And there are hundreds of millions of people that are already empowered. I think point number two is that there's a positive and a negative to that environment. I think as many governments have, have recognized the fact that we built this entire infrastructure on top of an architecture that has no native ability to be secured or to allow people to trust it is a real problem. And a lot of people refer to that as the, the cyber threat problem. So whether you look at the WikiLeaks initial problem of people getting digital information and sharing it on the Internet, or whether you uh, didn't get bothered by that, but you get bothered by the retribution that came back against companies that were trying to defend against that, which resulted in the kind of digital attacks on the Visa and MasterCard networks and things of that nature. It's clear that with as many of us relying on the Internet for all the things that we do, we need to make it secure. And that's clear in 2011 in ways that it never was before. And I think conversely, if you look at it from a positive perspective, as we look at improving healthcare, improving the delivery of public services, there's no way that we're going to be able to do that in a physical or paper-based way. So from a healthcare perspective, if it turns out that, that every American, for example, needs to uh, ensure that they have the right type of healthcare, to file that information in the kind of regular course of business is much more like doing the census every month than it is like filing your taxes. And so there's no way that we're going to be able to support the kinds of service delivery in a physical world as we go forward. And so I think for all those reasons, governments have recognized that this is an important time for them to step up and to help enable the kind of marketplaces that would allow a conversion from this e-commerce model that we have that has high cost of security and is really not sustainable, and to help evolve to this trust architecture. So we've seen things like in the U.S., the adoption of the trust framework model as part of the federal enterprise architecture that will rely on uh, commercial enterprises 
to issue digital credentials to their customers, knowing that that same human being that a, that a bank considers to be a customer, the government considers to be a citizen. And it's very easy for the government to then accept that same digital credential issued by the bank to that individual. And by virtue of doing that, we can move lots of services online and we can create this trust infrastructure with the government looking like the big buyers and, and the commercial enterprises looking like what we would call identity providers. And so in 2011, 2012, we really do have this opportunity to reach a tipping point that allows us to make a rapid transformation from this e-commerce model that has these unsustainable costs associated with it to this trust architecture built on identity and privacy and security. Well, that's well said, Mike, and we've covered a lot of topics here today. A final question for you, if you could boil it down, what advice would you give to organizations just to get started down this path toward the three pillars of trust? I would say to take a look at yourself as a consumer and to recognize that the same things that you want as a consumer, the ability to interact with more service providers, not less, the ability to do things more conveniently, whether that's from your cell phone or from some type of online environment, those are the same things that your customers want. And so as we look at the ability to move forward and provide a higher level of service, we should now redouble our efforts, I think, and intentionally look at ways that we can offer services in, in ways that we never have been able to offer them before, and then to step back and to look with fresh eyes at the ability to build a new service model built on these three pillars, identity, privacy, security, so that we can offer lower costs, lower risk, with a much higher return. Well said, Mike. I appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise today. Thank you. Thank you. We've been talking about identity, privacy, and security, the three pillars of trust. We've been talking with Mike Osborne of Booz Allen Hamilton. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.